Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, the best podcast in the world, book two, chapter 38. Any chance of Julian getting let off the hook? I Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I don't know. There's talk of it. Could it happen? And does anyone else notice a stylistic change in the prose of this chapter? It seemed there was a lot of obsolete language. There was a lot of repetitive sentences. And there was a lot of obscure words. Weird synonyms, like they'd opted for, like he had a thesaurus handy when he wrote this chapter. Uh, And it was quite sloppy and amateurish and really uncharacteristic of the rest of the novel. This one chapter seemed like it was written to me by a different author. Or Stendhal was in a mood when he wrote this one. Maybe he had a headache, excuse me, a headache going on. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he wasn't paying attention or just wasn't with it that day. I don't know, but... Or it could also be the translator, I suppose, who had that kind of a day and did a bad job of translating the chapter. But anyway, I wondered if anyone else noted noticed it. Looking through the... There's only two comments on today's discussion, and neither of them have addressed that, so I suppose no one else did notice it. But I thought it was interesting to note. Swinson the Mama Fishy said, While making dinner, I was idly thinking about the book and specifically this line. In the upper ranks of Paris society where Matilda had always dwelled, passion can only very rarely cut through prudence. Which led me to reflect on earlier chapters where Stendhal described how boring it was in Paris society. Which, of course, being me, I immediately thought of this scene of Blazing Saddles where Madeleine Kahn sings, I'm tired. I uh, haven't watched Blazing Saddles for a long time. Good movie, though. By the way, oh, you've answered the question that we're all wondering. Dinner is fettuccine with bolognese sauce and a Caesar salad. Very nice. Smiley face. Uh, Yeah, smiley face indeed. Fettuccine bolognese, hell yeah. Um, You did Americanize that a little bit. Um, I'll forgive you though. Are you American? No, you're not American, are are you? I can't remember if you're from Canada or America. Sorry, that's probably a bit of a dick move for me not to remember that. Um, When Americans talk about pasta (laughs) it's one of the funniest things in the world to me to listen to an american talk about pasta because you just say everything wrong everything you just you just sat it's like you got you know when um there's that picture of um a rhinoceros that was drawn (laughs) by someone who only had a rhinoceros described to them and you look at it and it's just like this hilarious alien with like technically the features of a rhinoceros but it just looks like goofy as hell all out of proportion that's what it's like to listen to an american talk about pasta it's like i can see what you're trying to say but you're saying it all wrong and i know you'll probably defend yourselves by saying like you know different parts of the world use different words for different things Um, but this isn't one of those cases like you literally just use the wrong words like for example noodle noodle isn't part of the pasta conversation. You should never... You can talk about the whole world of pasta. You can visit Italy from one end of the, to the other. You never need to say the word noodle. It's not in. It's not part of it. Fettuccine, you've said, that's the type of pasta. That's the cut. You know, that's what the pasta looks like. Spaghetti, that's the one that resembles a noodle. But you don't need to say noodle because spaghetti, inherently, that's what that is. Okay. But macaroni doesn't even resemble a noodle. So when I hear an American say, with macaroni noodles, that's the funniest thing in the world. When you say penne noodles, <laughs> that's 
hilarious when you say like, what noodles did you have? I'm like, I'm rolling on the floor. When you say spaghetti sauce, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Spaghetti is a type of pasta, which does not indicate what kind of sauce is on it. Any kind of sauce can go on spaghetti. So spaghetti sauce, that's dumb. So when you say spaghetti noodles with spaghetti sauce, oh my, I need 10 minutes. <laughs> when you call uh, red sauce, which we call usually either red sauce or Napoli. Napoli is just, it's just a plain red sauce, right? Um, you guys call that marinara, which is just wrong. Marinara in every other place in the world except America means seafood. Marine. Marinara. In America, though, that just means red sauce. Why? Because you're wrong. And you're hilariously wrong. Um, <laughs> why, am I why am I ranting about spaghetti? Why am I ranting about pasta right now? What's going on here? I'm sorry. Um, so you didn't Americanize it too bad. They actually swim. I think you might be Canadian because you didn't Americanize that too bad. Fettuccine with bolognese sauce. Yeah, that, no, that's fine. That's fine. You could have just said fettuccine bolognese, which is why I said you Americanized it. Because bolognese is a sauce. So you don't need to say bolognese sauce. But hey, I'll forgive you for that. You're just being clear. You're just speaking well. I'm sorry for this big rant. <laughs> um... What was I saying? Oh, yeah, and the other funny thing about... Oh, I'm going to stop ranting about Americans and pasta. No, I've got to say one more funny thing. Is that, like, the way Americans use cheese, like, it's like a number. What's your favorite cheese is, like, a number. Like, mm, three cheese. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I can go better than three cheese. I made a five cheese macaroni and cheese. Ooh, five is a higher number. That is better. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Like, unless, like a three cheese macaroni, that's great. But it just seems to be a number race in America. Where if you're a cheese maker, let's say you've dedicated your life to making cheese, right? That's your passion. And you're making this new product and you want it to be your best cheese yet. And you do test groups. You get all these people into taste... You know, you, you make 50 batches of this cheese, all with slight adjustments. And then you you narrow it down to the best five. And then you get people into taste tests. You get hundreds of people to taste test it, right? Until you get the best one of those. And then you go, yes, that is, that is, the, there's something subtle about this, but this is the best of those cheeses. All right. You've, you've got your new cheese in the lineup. And it's very delicately balanced. It's only very slightly different from all the other ones. But those slight differences, that's the new ones, right? That's what good food's about. Then an American comes along and just mixes that with seven other cheeses. And be like, oh, eight cheese blend? That's my favorite cheese. <laughs> you can't taste any of the subtle tastes in anything when you mix them together. That's my point. Uh, but anyway, enough about how hilarious American food is. Let us continue. Laura Y. Stitch, 
said something which was related to the book we're reading, weirdly enough, and not related to my pastor-based ranting. Um, I'm also, I'm aware of recently, I'm just kind of like stacks on America. I love America. So I don't want my American listeners, which is most of the listeners, to think that I hate you guys. But I think at the moment, it's like open season because like, I think it's just because of the way the pandemic is happening over there, which is unfortunate. And I know it's not happening on purpose and it's, it's terrible, but we're just over here rolling our eyes like, who the hell is Jake Paul? Why has he got a say in this? Why is Kanye West maybe going to be the president? Why is your president Donald Trump? Like, why this? Why? It's just, there's just a million questions that I'm just baffled. And um, now I see you've got 5 million coronavirus cases and people are still debating, like, should they wear masks and stuff? And it's just like, I don't know. I'm disappointed. And I, you know, look, Australia, where I'm from, we're dumb here. All right. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to say you're dumber. I'm just saying the news that I'm seeing, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, you're just having your day in the sun. That's all it is. Soon enough, my country will do something dumb. Actually, we did do something dumb. I don't know if you heard, but there's an outbreak. (laughs) This isn't funny, but there's an outbreak of coronavirus here at the moment in my state in Victoria. And we had it under control. We did the first lockdown, had the first wave, and we stamped out the virus. And we were down to like a handful of new cases per day, like literally less than 10 per day and um they were all quarantined everything was good you know (laughs) and then we had these people come from another country like returning home and they were infected so they went straight into quarantine in this um repurposed hotels we repurposed some hotels so they could have somewhere to stay um and that's fine they had to be in lockdown for like three weeks or whatever however long it is until they were no longer contagious. And they were confirmed to have the virus. But they were they were not um they were not critical. You know, they weren't dying or anything like that. They were asymptomatic, I think, actually. But they had the virus. So they had to be in lockdown for a month or whatever. And um so there were people employed as essentially like security guards at the hotel just to make sure no one goes in and make sure these people, you know, have everything they need and they're not trying to sneak out in the dead of night or anything like that. Um, one of the security guards had sex with one of the quarantined coronavirus people, knowing that they had coronavirus. And then they just knocked off work and went back to their family slash home slash community uh, and just spread the virus. And now we have another outbreak of coronavirus because a security guard who was supposed to be stopping coronavirus from spreading away from these hotel rooms just also really wanted to get laid. So, there you go. You're not the dumbest country in the world. I'll give you that. But tell you one thing you're not very good at talking about pasta (laughs) laura y stitch said the beginning of this chapter was fantastic particularly this as for what you call your crime but which 
is really nothing more or less than a noble vengeance, and this. In spite of all his prejudices against Mademoiselle de la Mole, prejudices, moreover, which he had not allowed to himself, frank, quite frankly, Julian found her extremely pretty. <clears throat> Julian is a very strange boy. Let's read chapter 38. Intrigue. Castres, 1676, a brother came to assassinate his sister in the next house next to mine. This gentleman was already guilty of one murder. His father had saved his life by secretly distributing 500 ukus amongst the councillors. Locke travels in France. On leaving the bishop's palace, Matilda did not hesitate to send a courier to Madame de Fervax. She was not deterred for one moment by the fear of being compromised. She entreated her rival to obtain a letter for Monsieur de Frillier to be written entirely in the hand of Monsignor, the Bishop of Dash. She went so far as to beg her to hurry down to Bezacon herself, a heroic action on the part of so haughty and jealous a spirit. Following Fuchs' advice, she had the good sense not to mention these proceedings to Julian. Her presence troubled him enough as it was. Becoming more scrupulous and sensitive as death approached than he had ever been before, he felt compunction not only about Ma uh, Monsieur de la Mole, but also about Matilda. What's this, said he to himself, while I am here with her, I endure fits of inattention, even of boredom. She is ruining herself for me, and this is how I repay her. Am I really such a scoundrel? Such a question would not have detained him long enough, long, sorry, when he was still ambitious, then the only disgrace he had recognised was the failure to succeed. His moral unease in Matilda's presence became more, became the more marked since he inspired in her, at this time, the wildest, most extraordinary passion. She would talk of nothing but the incredible sacrifices she was eager to make to save him. Exalted by a sentiment of which he, she was proud, and that overcame all her arrogance, she was reluctant to let a moment of her life go by without occupying it with some remarkable deed. The strangest projects, most perilous to her, filled all her long talks with Julian. The amply paid jailers allowed her to do what she liked in the prison. Matilda's ideas were not confined to the sacrifice of her reputation. She cared little if the whole of society should know of her condition. <clears throat> flinging herself to her knees and suing for mercy in front of the king's galloping carriage, compelling the prince's attention at the risk of being trampled in pieces a thousand times, such was the one of the milder fantasies dreamed up in this bold and exalted imagination. She was confident that her friends in the service of the king would admit her to the reserved sections in the park at St. Cloud. Julian felt himself hardly worthy of so much devotion. In truth, he was weary of heroics. He would have found a simple, naive, even a timid tenderness affecting, whereas, on the contrary, the notion of an audience of the presence of others was always requisite to Matilda's haughty soul. In the midst of all her anguish, all her fears for the life of this lover whom she had no wish to survive, she felt no obscure... She felt an obscure need to astound society by the intensity of her love and the sublimity of her undertakings. 
Julian was beginning to feel provoked at his incapacity to be moved by all this heroical behaviour. What, then, if he had learnt of the follies of Matilda heaped on the head, devoted but limited to eminently reasonable, of the excellent Fouque? The latter did not know quite how to find fault with Matilda's devotion. He, too, would have sacrificed his whole fortune and exposed his life to the greatest dangers to save Julian. He was stupefied by the amount of gold Matilda flung around, and for the first few days he, who had all of the provincial's veneration for money, was deeply impressed by the sums expended. But as time went on, he discovered that Mademoiselle de la Mole's projects were subject to frequent variation, and, to his great relief, he found a term by which to criticise a character that exhausted him so much. She was changeable. From this epithet, epithet, sorry, to that of hot-headed, the greatest possible anathema in the provinces was only a step. It is strange, said Julian to himself one day as Matilda was leaving the prison, that so flaming a passion, and one of which I am the object, leaves me so cold, and two months ago I adored her. I have often read that the approach of death detaches one from everything, but it is frightful to feel ungrateful and be unable to change. Am I then just an egoist? He suffered the most humiliating self-reproaches on this account. Ambition was dead in his heart. Another passion rose in, on its ashes. He labelled it remorse for having assassinated Madame de Renal. Really, he was deeply enamoured of her. He found a peculiar happiness when left absolutely alone and with no fear of being interrupted. He could abandon himself wholly to memories of happy days spent long ago in Verrieres and at Vergy. The least details of this, the past, for far too quickly flown, had for him an irresistible freshness and charm. He never gave his success in powers of thought. He was bored by it. This disposition, which rapidly grew stronger, was partly guessed at by Matilda's jealousy. She saw very clearly that she might fight against his love of solitude, Sometimes, in trepidation, she mentioned the name of Madame de Renal. She saw Julian tremble. Henceforth, her passion had no bounds, no measure. If he dies, I die after him, she said to herself with all possible sincerity. What will the Paris Salon say when they see a girl of my rank adore a doomed lover to such a degree? To find a love like this, one must go back to the heroic age. It was passion of this kind that made hearts beat faster in the times of Charles IX and Henry III. What, said she to herself with horror, in the midst of the most fervent raptures and clasping Julian's head to her breast, this fine head is destined to fall very well, she went on, inflamed by a heroism not unmixed with happiness. Very well, my lips that now are pressed to these beautiful locks will themselves be cold less than twenty-four hours after. The idea of such moments of heroism and terrible voluptuousness held her in an unconquerable grasp. The thought of suicide so fascinated in itself, and hit her though so distant from the haughty soul, penetrated it and soon ruled there with absolute dominion. No, the blood of my ancestors has not become lukewarm in its descent to me, Matilda proudly told herself. I have a favour to ask of you, her lover said to her one day. Put your child out to nurse in Verrieres, and Madame de Renal will supervise it. That's such a hard thing to say to me, and Matilda went pale. That's true, and I ask a thousand pardons, cried Julian, emerging from his reverie and taking her in his arms. After having dried her tears, he returned to the thought, but more skilfully. 
He had given the conversation a melancholy, philosophical turn. Now he spoke of the future that, for him, was so soon to find an end. One must admit, dearest love, that passion... Ow! <laughs> that passion... Sorry. Loves... Uh, what? That passionate loves are a contingency of life, but a contingency met with only by superior souls. The death of my child would, at root, be a relief to your family's pride, and that fact will not be lost on their underlings. Neglect will be the fate of this child of misfortune and shame. I trust that, at a period I would not care to prescribe, but am nevertheless resolute enough to foresee, you will take my parting advice that you will marry Monsieur Le Marquis de Cruisnois. What, and dishonour myself? No, dishonour can attach to a name like yours. You will be a widow and the widow of a lunatic, that's all. I will go further. Since my crime wasn't in any sense for money, it won't dishonour you at all. By that time, perhaps some enlightened lawgiver will have procured the suppression of the death penalty from the prejudices of his contemporaries. Then some friendly voice may cite an example. Listen, the first husband of Mademoiselle de la Mole was a madman, but he wasn't wicked, not a villain. It was ridiculous to chop off his head. So my name won't be infamous, at least, after a certain time. Your position in the world, your fortune, and if I may say so, your own genius, will make Monsieur de Cruisnois, by then your husband, play a role he could not aspire to on his own. He possesses only birth and high courage, and these qualities alone, which made a, which made a man of parts in 1729, are an anachronism a hundred years later, and only supply a man with pretensions. Different qualities now are needed to lead the youth of France. You will bring the advantage of your own powerful and enterprising character to the political faction into which you will thrust your husband. You will be the successor of the Chevreus and the Longuevilles of the Fronde. But by then, dearest one, the sacred flame that burns in you will have cooled a little. Allow me to say this to you, he added after several other preparatory remarks. In fifteen years, you will regard the love you have felt for me as a folly. Pardonable, but a folly nonetheless. All at once, he broke off and returned to his musings. He found himself yet again faced with the idea that so shocked Matilda. Fifteen years from now... Madame de Renard will adore my son, and you will have for <coughs> excuse me, and you will have forgotten him. Nearly made it to the end of the chapter without sneezing, but I sneezed in the second last word. Have your say about that. Not the sneeze, the chapter. Over at the Hemingway List podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.